You have a, a quasi agenda that you would like to? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, this is part of a new series that you're going to do? It's basically me just sort of tightening up on my mission, which is to get best practitioners to tell me exactly what they do and how they do it. Best practitioners, that's what I want, is a kaleidoscopic examination of the book. That's been the mission all along. What a kaleidoscopic examination. You sound like a proctologist. Uh, a proctologist of the book. <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. That's good. I think I'll use that. If I write a book, I'm going to get you to blurb it like that. Anyway, yeah, that's that's it. And you know the things that I find up there. Yeah, good, good colon scopes. <laughs> yeah, You're I, a polyp. Yeah. I, I, well, put. many people have said. Um, okay, I, I, I follow what you're getting at. Let me leave. Let me leave it to you then, just to open the dialogue, and I will uh, pursue it with you. Very good. Uh, is there something on your website you would like me to? You know, it's funny you say that. We, we're li- we literally just finished an incredibly elaborate six month production. I'm not, I'm not sure why, except my my staff persuaded me it made sense to do it because we never really have a website if you go on it's 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 as, it's as dull as a three-day-old tuna fish sandwich but they've just undertaken you know at not inconsiderable cost building a very elaborate website with bells and whistles it was going to go live about a week ago but there's there's a, a a small i guess it is a crisis to a number of people there's a law firm down in the united states i don't know if it's happened up in canada but um the united states is a you know tried uh, tested and, and, and enduring law concerning disabled people's rights concerning entrance to buildings and this or that. So uh, a, a lawyer who clearly makes his living looking for loopholes in laws uh, f- found a blind woman to act as his uh, his 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 plaintiff and has sued uh, a number of booksellers and I guess a gallerist too, but booksellers in particular. Uh, who have websites that don't conform to the ADA standards. They want you to put Braille on the screen? Is that well, what that Braille, I mean, it's bells and whistles. I, Lauren, uh, you know, my associate, who, you know, would be is, is sort of involved in talking to a number of these people. I've not followed it because she's overseeing the build-out of the website. But apparently it's, it's, it's very straightforward. I mean, uh, all of these websites do not conform to the rather simple A through Z uh, regulations that are built into the ADA law, you know, and so people have been disgorging, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, you know, as penalties, and then going back and having to spend even more money to rebuild their websites. So pro- probably, fortunately for us, that's probably be a good blog, but a good podcast. <laughs> but uh, fortunately for us, uh, one of our closest associates here in the city, an autograph dealer that I actually went to college with, got uh, entrapped in this in this this oversized uh, fishing net to the tune of about twenty five grand, and was able to alert us. No, Not really alert us because he knows that we don't need to be said, well, you're lucky you don't have a website. <laughs> Lauren said, well, we, we are about to have one a week later. So we, we have gone back for a week or 10 days to the drawing board. So there will be a very elaborate website. I just need a, li- a very little blurb on you that you're happy with. Is it, if, is it up there right now on your existing site or not? It, it must be. But I, 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 if I told you I've never looked at it, uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. Well, let's just go with... Revered? Do you like Revered? 
I think you would get a lot of blowback. I have to tell you, really. On, on revered, sure. Yeah. Okay, maybe, maybe my two daughters might, might potentially enjoy. It. Sure. But, okay. Um, okay. So, Glenn Horowitz is a seasoned and highly regarded, some might say notorious, archive dealer and bookseller. Are we good with that? That's correct. You want to put anything else in there? No, I think the notorious probably summed it up beautifully. Ruth Ginsburg and I. (laughs) Very good. Welcome, Glenn, again to the Bibliophile. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Nigel. Okay, so let me just get a handle on what you do. It seems to me that what you do is you look for things of value, and then you approach the people who own that valuable thing, and you propose that you can sell it for them in a way that results in getting the true value and placing whatever that thing of value is in an institution, typically, that it deserves to end up in. Is that, would you say that's good? It's fundamentally correct. It's rough at the edges. Um, Like myself. Yeah, that's a business is bifurcated between transactions with with, with large research institutions uh, and or foundation entities that, for various reasons, have an interest in participating in uh, the type of archival material DNA that that we handle, with the other percentage of our transactions being done uh, directly with collectors and end users of the sort of books and manuscripts that, that I find interesting and that they have also grown to feel uh, is, is compelling. Okay. I mean, and and just, just, just to refine it for you, I would say yes. that in terms, of, in terms of the number of transactions, or as my, my grandfather, the ancient uh, furniture salesman on the Catskill Mountain used to say, the number of tickets that we write, the, the higher percentage goes uh, into the column of private collectors the larger dollar volume, of course, given the size of the archival transactions, falls into the column of institutions. Very good. Okay. So I want to talk about Sting. Sting just sold his backlist, or I guess it's the rights to his backlist of songs for $300 million. Now, he would have sold that to some kind of organization that will make money off that backlist. The, the, the transaction that, that reached the press recently about Sting's sale is, is, is part of a, a long, not long, it's a short list of transactions that you know, genuinely global musical figures ranging from Dylan to Paul Simon to Neil Young and Sting, Johnny Mitchell, have engaged in with uh, the major labels. Fundamentally, what they're really doing is they're just, they're, they're just tying up the loose ends at the end of their lives pressure lives and, and, and you're cashing it in. And, and I'm sure that a lot of it is driven by uh, estate considerations, which is it's much easier to divide a, a pile of residual uh, cash amongst generations of survivors than have somebody managing all of these you know, endless streams of, of revenue that come from various platforms. Again, I haven't followed the Sting one, but in the case of Dylan, who, as you know, participated twice, did twice, I mean, there's a difference between the publication rights and the performance rights. 
And in the case of Dylan, he he did because he's Bob controlled both of them. So I haven't followed the Sting story, but yes, I mean, they bundled the rights to his songs and sold it to somebody who bought it to exploit it. There's, there's, there's nothing philanthropic about any of these transactions. They're done by large multinational corporations for the benefit of uh, their stakeholders. So just the idea of looking for value. So there's Sting. Now, Sting has... He's probably got a ton of notebooks that he's written song lyrics in. He's he's got a bunch of material that could, and he's written some books could feasibly end up in a an institution. Correct? Yes. There's no question. I mean, how it gets there is 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 another strain of the uh, the dialogue. But yes, I mean, there's no question. You know, as as happened when we did deals for both uh, in recent memory, Bob Dylan and David Byrne, all of their leavings were ultimately acquired by research-driven institutions. You know, as, as long as music remains, it seems to be contemporary music in particular, you know, a, a, a staple of, the, of the, the language that we collectively speak and the glamour of rock and roll and right. popular music continues, I mean, there will be institutions that find this a, a compelling and, and, and uh, you know, savvy way to uh, increase their brand of, of scholarship. Plus attendance, right? You know, it, it really, it, 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 that's a good question. But I mean, I mean, it is, it is true. And, and this is about when I entered, well, I shouldn't say entered, when, when I expanded our, uh, you know, vision of portfolio of what, of what archival material we would, we would, we would work on. I was hired, the, the only other significant tranche of Bob Dylan material that uh, sits in an institution other than the, the massive collection that we, we sent out to Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, through the, uh, auspices of the Geyser Foundation is either, either amusingly, touchingly, poignantly is owned by the Morgan Library of all places, and their much much smaller collection uh, was acquired by by gift from a fellow with a capital F of the Morgan Library who had collected it over many years, uh, collected it when it was easier to find it and and less expensive. When the Morgan received the material and announced it, uh, there was a, a tremendous kerfuffle on the part of Dylan and Dylan's people over why in God's name this material was not only not in Bob's hands, but now in the hands of the Morgan Library, and the Morgan Library was prepared to make it available to the public. It turned out that the material, the transfer of title from Bob to his close early companions on the road in the early 60s was incontestable. And, and these people just sold it, right? They sold it when, when it when it rose sufficiently in value to attract the attention of of collectors. The Morgan having no uh, dog in the fight and certainly not having any reason to want to create bad blood between themselves and Bob Dylan uh, reached an agreement with Bob that they wouldn't exhibit the material to make it available until after his death. At some point, and I and I may be I may be blurring the edges of this, but but at some point uh, apparently Bob went in the city. Uh, out of curiosity, because he is something of a of, of a self archivist, asked the Morgan if he could come over and, and review the material. This was after the deal had been uh, uh, memorialized over how it would be handled, and they said, "You know, we'll be, we'll be thrilled. Come, we'll give you we'll give you lunch." And um, Bob went over and looked at it, and, and and I think he was he was sufficiently moved to see that early work and realize that there was nothing explosive about it. And so he said to them, look, if you really want to, I'll, I'll lift the restrictions. He said, what we'd really love to do, if, if you're prepared to do that, is an exhibition of the material. What happened was they did an exhibition and it turned out to their astonishment, 
remembering something about the history of the Morgan Library and the nature of the people who have served as trustees and benefactors over the years, it turned out to be the single most heavily uh, attended exhibition in the history of the Morgan Library. So when was that? I would guess probably somewhere around 2005, 2006. But, you know, it's easy enough to dig it up. And nonetheless, at the end of it, um, it traveled to one or two other venues. And when the material came back, those venues reported to the Morgan. They had very similar experiences with just you know, a, a flood of people coming through the doors. Yeah, and, and I think they may have sensed at the time that the days of people walking through the doors to look at you know, the miniature notebooks of the Bronte sisters versus looking at Bob Dylan's <laughs> handwritten manuscripts of Blowing in the Wind uh, had been a somersault in terms of, of interest. So they, they then hired us at the Morgan at the request of the trustees, because they said, look, this stuff is clearly more valuable than we initially thought it was, and what we are carrying it on our you know, P&L for, in a sense, right? Did the, the person donate it to the Morgan, or did he get paid? No, he, he did. He did. Uh, the gentleman in question had been a, you know, a good friend to the Morgan. Uh, he and I, Ms. actually built a great George Bernard Shaw collection back in the 80s, which mm-hmm. he then gave in, in block to the, uh, to, to, to the Morgan. So this was the second major gift he had made. I don't know if, if, if his tax credits were taken at the time of the gift at the level that they were then appraised at, but when we got done appraising it, uh, it really did cause a lot of uh, you know, genuine consternation on the part of the Morgan that somehow you know, this, this extraordinarily valuable pot of material was there. You know, in, in many ways, that, that to me was an eye-opening experience. The combination of being able to justify in a proper revenue service sound appraisal, the material at the level that we did, plus listening to, you know, my colleagues at the Morgan just sort of babble and drool on themselves over the remarkable response they got to it, you know, just suggested to me that there was probably a world out there that uh, was worth pursuing. Okay, so let's go back to Sting. You seem, you seem obsessed by this thing. Sorry. Well, I do just because I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting case. And, and plus it helps me with my questioning of you. So for example, you would let, let's say, Oh, you know what? We should approach Sting and see if he's got, see what he's got. Mm-hmm. How would you do that? And what would you ask him? And what would you look for? How I approach it is, is you know, each case is, you know, is different. I, it, it's not that difficult for me, having done this for as many years as I have, to you know, shrink you know, six degrees of separation down to one degree of separation. And yeah. I've been very fortunate and, and, and blessed uh, in the course of doing what ultimately became that uh, massive transaction for Mr. Dillon. Uh, I grew very, very close to his uh, remarkably intelligent and humane business manager of 40 years, Jeff Rosen who really does seem to sit, you know, at this, at least intellectually at the center of, of this world of, of popular music. And, and, and each time uh, people question, having read about the Dylan transaction, if the clients they represent um, yeah. you know, might be suitable candidates for, for, for a transaction, they go to Jeff, who then fortunately says, you know, you should go chat with my friend, Glenn. Um, okay, so, so, the answer- so if you ask me, I, I would just ask somebody relatively high yeah. in the music business to introduce me. You've got a great reputation for doing well by people who own stuff. You know, you're the go-to guy. So it's not that difficult for you then. I think what we have a reputation for that serves our commercial purposes is, is for being frank with people. And from there, projects either will take off or be backburnered or in some cases, you know, abandoned. 
but you know, I've noticed over the years that one of the one of the uh, modest compliments that's paid to me by the people that I speak to who come to me for advice is thank you for being as straightforward and frank with me about it and not you're not blowing smoke up my backside. In the case right. of people like Paul Simon or Neil Young, Dylan, you know, it, it would be foolish to be anything other than frank because you know. They don't need me. <laughs> they, they, only, they, only, they only want me if there's something I can do for them at that point in time. Right? They, right. they all have enough friends. Well, you know, that's the thing. You know, I see what you've done for various collections in the form, uh, at least, of your catalogs. And I'm blown away by how magnificent they are. You're talking now about the printed catalogs that you and I have discussed that over the years, our mutual friend, Jerry Kelly, who's been on your podcast. I I have to acknowledge that I think that at this juncture in my uh, commercial trajectory, that the days of producing those very elaborate catalogs probably are running out. And and it's not because uh, there isn't material to do it. We, we we produced one about a year, year and a half ago, two years ago maybe now, uh, for Franklin Roosevelt that I thought was as good as anything we've done, both uh, aesthetically and textually. But there is such an abundance of information that crosses the screen daily. It seems to me that you do such a beautiful job of presenting both, well, presenting the value of what you have and then also writing about it, it's as much to show the client or your, you know, your client, you know, this is what I, I can do for you as, as much as using it as a sales. Well, I mean, I mean it's, if, if it was a coin, there would be both two sides to it. And you're right. I mean, we, we've used the catalogs for two reasons. I, I, I've written a couple of catalogs uh, in the past, literally with one client, in mind, you know, I, I had a Churchill collection many years ago that I was eager to sell to my 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 already established uh, client, uh, Steve Forbes, Malcolm Forbes Jr., who at the time was building what was by far the most interesting Churchill collection in private hands. But knowing uh, Steve and his his, his predilections and his uh, attention span, it struck me that rather than trying to peddle these books across the boardroom table at Forbes magazine creating a catalog, and it was a beautiful collection that you could really narrate Churchill's life through these books and objects, and then presenting him with the galleys before the catalog went out would serve my purpose. And indeed, it worked, and he bought the entire collection except for three or four items. But we used the catalogs posthumously, uh, both as a way of introducing ourselves to people that we might want to represent or do business with on the buy side, and also as a way of lubricating the imagination, as you were saying a moment ago, of new potential clients who uh, you know, look and say, you know, what is it you can do for me? And we say, this is what we handle. This is how we present it. This is what I believe we can do for you. But I, I'm, just, I'm just not sure that like certain other types of printed material that were once common in the world of rare books and manuscripts that that the lifespan or the shelf life of, of that type of catalog has not begun to run its course. And even some of the older and much more um, and, and distinguished uh, firms that have been around for, for generations, Mags Brothers in London, Quarge, uh, they, they all seem to have now, of course not reverted, but, but, but have migrated their catalog texts online. And, and you simply don't see printed catalogs showing up. That makes them that much more collectible, Glenn, because well, they're 
to be making them anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, I mean, they, they, they there's no right? question that, that, that you know, thank you, Will Rogers. Yes. No, no, they, they don't make it anymore. That's right. <laughs> it's land and catalog. <laughs> they're, they're both finite. Right. Okay. So um, let's look at how you write your catalogs. You, first of all, you're, you're putting them in a beautiful format. And that's what I talked to Jerry about. But you're using some very persuasive techniques. I want you to tell me about those. Well, I mean, we, 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 we write the catalogs. If, if it's a catalog that's dedicated to a particular collection, and the collection has more than an amorphous shape to it, or, or more interestingly, it's a collection that's dedicated to the work of one individual writer or public figure. Like, um, like this? Like, like, like the Grushkin catalog. Um, and that, that's a slightly unusual one because Grushkin was not a text-based figure. He was, he was the designer. Um, right. So the ability, the ability to take existing text and then lace it through fresh text, the text we create, is, is slightly different. But what we, we do is what, whenever I, I, I'm training young associates who, who, who come aboard and join the firm is in teaching them how to describe a book or an object uh, I use the the uh, slightly uh, maybe uh, juvenile or adolescent expression of you know I, I want it to be from the inside out. So if you actually look at uh, a book catalog that we've written, uh, we use a format of cataloging uh, very much derived from a traditional British Library format. Little spin on it, where we, we basically zero in on the title page and then move further out and out and out. So we go from the declared information on the title page and copyright page about what this, this, this title is into the question of its physical aspects in the second paragraph so that anybody who is sensitive to books would understand the condition of that particular object from there, we move into any bibliographical information that is of value. And from there, we then move into both a biographical and a historical moment in which we try to create a context in which to understand the merit and therefore value of that particular object. So it really, you know, sort of is, 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 is looking in and then uh, zooming back out um, that we try to do. And by the end, it gives you an opportunity to, to spiel uh, endlessly, uh, but you've established conclusively before that, what that object is and why that object merits the amount of attention that we're dedicating to it. Okay, so very specifically about the merit. Merit is different than, for example, scarcity. Like scarcity is obviously a determinant of value. If it's unique, that's that's obviously important, I guess, because you can't get it anywhere else. But uh, as far as merit goes... And you, for example, writing, you know, this book caused this change in the world? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if you have a copy of a book, if you have a copy of a text, I hesitate to use the word book because um, but if you have a copy of a text in whatever yeah. format it exists, right? uh, the double helix was first introduced into the world in the form of a very flimsy off print from a scientific magazine that off print today trades for you know tens and tens of thousands of dollars but but if you have a text in in its original uh, incarnation that has about it world altering elements you know as a uh, vendor of 
valuable book objects, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, good, good uh, hand of cards to be sitting at the table with. Um, if that particular text then in turn uh, is embodied in a copy of the format that the book, that the text was introduced into, that makes it unique, you know, that, then you've got yourself a, you know, a very potent uh, piece of property. And, and even the word unique is in some ways deserves a qualification because you could argue that you know, every copy of, say, Ernest Hemingway's first book, privately printed in Paris in 1924, 23, I'm sorry, Three Stories and Ten Poems, that Hemingway inscribed is unique. Is there, however, you know, a way of grading the difference between the copy that he inscribed to the stock boy at Sylvia Beach's Shakespeare and Company, because he was always very generous to Hemingway when Hemingway came in to exchange books in the Lending Library, versus the copy that he inscribed uh, to Maxwell Perkins on the day that Perkins buys his first book from him in 1925. Yeah. And, and the difference between those is the space that you can drive uh, one of those Canadian tractor trailers on the bridge right now through. Those things don't move, though. No, I guess they've taken all the diesel out, so they can't move them. That's right. right. It seems to be both a more subtle and then ultimately you know, even brutal phenomenon because it, you, you move from an aesthetic decision into one that's you know is 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 based on you know, hardcore currency. How far can you push something? You see, yeah, for example, yeah. I'm sure talking to many booksellers and visiting uh, book fairs here and there that within the trade there is a great deal of how would you say you know horse swapping that goes on. People buying books from other dealers, what have you. Clearly, at that moment, one of two reasons or three reasons, I suppose, uh, exist for why a bookseller would buy another uh, would buy an expensive book from another dealer. Right? They look at that book and they say, "Gee, you know, Nigel, Nigel just has missed the boat altogether. This is worth you know many times uh, more than, than he thinks it is. He's, he's missing what makes this essential." Or they have a customer, and Nigel says, "Look, you know, I, for whatever discount I can negotiate and whatever fee I can commission, I can charge my customer. That, that that's how I earn a living, like 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 any uh, commission based business." Or thirdly, uh, the the dealer, which happens very often, is here himself a collector of books and is buying it for their own long-term portfolio. But but there is a great deal of it takes place. So once once you see that, it calls into question the notion of there being a correct, uh, how would you established value for something. I guess, again, getting back to the words, it's how persuasive you are when you promote the particular volume that you have. I mean, Max Perkins, for example, is way more important than the stock boy in the sense that he influenced the text. You know, it's, it's the human touch, ultimately, that you're searching for. And, 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 it, and it took me decades to truly understand that, even though I was already sort of trying to sail on you know, certain waters in, in, in how I built it. But it then struck me you know, one day that, and I really think it did happen in, in the course of, sort of you know, that those, those sort of semi-conscious flashes where Hemingway inscribed both of those copies, the one to the stock boy that worked for Sylvia and the copy to Max Perkins, neither of which I believe exists. But, you know, I mean, there's no reason to think that he didn't do it. And, or I should say survive. And, and, and he had a motive for doing it. And, and in each case, he held that book in his hand or at his desk and he inscribed it. And that was the human touch. But the reasons for inscribing the book to Max Perkins takes on such a central and foundational impulse in Hemingway's life to build his career that he then is 
builds on the back of of, of the script. There's, you know, that's, that's, that's a very profound exchange that's taking place there. And to be able to trap all of that psychological and aesthetic energy in the guise of, of that book is, is really very exciting. And if you get that as a collector, you know, it, it'll blow your skull off your head. If you don't get it, even an educated, literate person, they'll look at you and say, you know, why would this be worth $75,000 and this be worth $750,000? And if you don't get it, you're never going to be able to explain it to somebody in a cogent and, and, and persuasive manner. Right. So you, who has you know, a, a deep attachment to books, looks at some of the uh, impolitely, I would say, elegant salesmanship that we inject into our catalogs, right? And you get it. A lot of people look at it and say, you know, I could buy the vintage paperback. What, what are you driving crazy uh, with all this nonsense here? I guess I get it. But I also get the fact that it's a, it's a lot of money for this kind of airy-fairy psychic energy. So he signed the book. But you're making the point that when he signed it, he gave it to him because this person is really, really important to him in his life. And you're capturing kind of that moment. Is that is that it? Yeah. Even the Bible starts with the book of Genesis, right? I mean, I mean, there has to be an origin story in, in all significant literary and public careers. So to, to the extent that you can trap in an object those elements of the story, that's what is you know, profoundly exciting to, uh, to, to, to collectors. And as I said, you know, if, if, if you don't have that impulse to collect right. it, sa- it sounds great over a dinner table and it sounds really good after three or four bourbons and a cigar, but right. you know, it just doesn't mean it's going to alter their life. But uh, you know, if, you've seen, <laughs> if you've seen people like our mutual friend, Mark Samuels Lasner, whose life has been dominated uh, in, in, in a very healthy manner, I, 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 would, I, would, I would argue too, yes. Yes. by proximity to books and pictures you know, with literary merit. I mean, it's, it's not even first nature or second nature, it's just his nature. And nature as we're learning is a very dangerous foe to try to fight. <laughs> we're better off to ally ourselves with nature. The object itself has this kind of psychic energy. What else, uh, and we talked about changing the world, obviously, anything else that would uh, immediately captivate a collector or an institution? Well, I mean, they are two different phenomena, which is to say that if, if you had, you know, just, just since we spoke about them, going back, if you had those two copies of Hemingway's privately printed first book, the Three Stories and Ten Poems, the copy endearingly inscribed to the young French stock boy at Shakespeare and Company, and then the copy uh, inscribed to Maxwell Perkins when he's in New York City and meeting him in 24 for the first time. And you went to a New York public library, a University of Texas, a Yale, you know, Stanford, major American research institutions that, that have uh, real holdings of Hemingway. They, they all have copies of Three Stories and Ten Poems. Uh, probably in some instances, they have multiple copies because they bought multiple collections in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and, and they were there. Well, they were given gifts of multiple uh, collections. Uh, and you said, look, I, I found these two extraordinarily interesting copies in, in a private collection, and, and uh, they're for sale. No institution would come near those books you know, at those prices in, 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 in 100 years because it has no, they have no research value. 
They have an emotional yes. to permit you to use that that overused word of psychic, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> centrifugal. It's not like a, a psychic centrifugal force that just compels the person, the collector, to move closer and closer to that object. But yeah. but but the distinction is that there is historically been between an institution and an individual is driven by research. Now, defining what research is, you know, is, is I suppose, you know, like the, the Supreme Court justice said, you know, it's like uh, pornography. I don't know what it is, but I, I know what I see it. Right? Um, so each institution comes and you know, tries to define what its own mission is. There's been a, a sea change in the last 10 years, which is, which is afflicted. I think that's the right word. Afflicted the book business at the same time, or maybe the, 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 the impulses were simultaneous. I've believed that I've said this in, uh, in other interviews. I've, I've said it once in a film, but I, I think in many ways, the life of the book is, or the book as, 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 as an organic object ha- has a certain uh, uh, terminal illness built into it. Might not kill it in a generation, might take two or three, but um the, the the value that we ascribe to certain types of texts, mostly imaginative, has 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 faded in the face of this superabundance of of quasi factual information that floods across people's screens every day. And in the process of people absorbing that information, it's also shattered. It seems to me their concentration. So uh, the idea that a fourteen to fifteen to sixteen year old girl uh, who spends her weeks on Instagram and TikTok and other forms of, of social media is going to spend the weekend uh, trying to understand the, the narrative intricacies of uh, Mrs. Dalloway or to the lighthouse. It's very hard. I mean, the concentration just isn't going to be there and they'll, they'll, they'll lose patience very, very quickly. But what, what, what's replaced it in the book business and then also, I believe, you know, to some extent, to, at the institutional level, is is this almost clarion call that they're hearing toward the accumulation and, and trapping of uh, physical evidence of people's places in the world. Ephemera has been on the rise, obviously. It's, it's, not, it's not just merely ephemera, because ephemera is always actually, and I've thought about this, you know, at, at length uh, over the last several years, ephemera has always existed within the book business. And if you go back and look at, booksellers catalogs from the 20s, 30s, 40s, you'll see the word oftentimes the title pages of ephemera, right? Um, I mean, the Hogarth Press, for example, uh, generated dozens of catalogs and flyers and notices that you could collect just the ephemera of the Hogarth Press and if you were successful at it and had some uh, copies that were annotated by Leonard of Virginia or John Lehman, that, that would be very exciting. So that form of uh, ephemeron you know, has existed. What's, what seems to be uh, taking place, and I think this has to probably derive, again, from just the endless amount of information or data that exists online, is this, is this focus on uh, anything that has survived that somehow documents a moment or a place. You'll, you'll see... Catalogs now, for example, one of the one of the areas that that's very heavily collected, seemingly very heavily collected, both by private and, and institutional buyers in the United States, and I think even more institutional than buyer, are things that relate to both the civil rights movement and not to both, but to the civil rights movement, to uh, the, the radicalization in the '60s of, of elements of the of the movement, and then ultimately, you know, through things like the Black Arts Movement, what have you, right? It's astonishing to people when they discover the abundance of ephemera, 
posters, pamphlets, circulars that the Black Panther Party generated. I mean, it's it's really quite extraordinary. I mean, because prior to uh, people looking back, looking retrospectively at the at the at the Panther movement, Black Panther movement, it it seems somehow to exist on television with machine guns pointed at you know police officers and what have you. But the 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 presses were going in every city in the United States, seemingly twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. And I look at things that now appear for sale. Pamphlets, posters for three hundred, five hundred, five thousand dollars. That, very frankly, back in the early '80s, when I was one of the very, very few people even handling African American material and publishing catalogs dedicated to doing exhibitions, I mean, you couldn't give this stuff away for ten, fifteen, twenty dollars. I mean, it just there was no market for it. So the question that arises is, you know, what? Why is that? And uh, I, I think the answer is as we move from a non-text-based culture to a visual culture, to one that is going to, you know, as, as the old joke is, I mean, you know, once, once, once it goes onto the internet, onto Google, it lives forever, right? So, I mean, I mean, p- people spend, I'm sure you see this, you know, just enormous amount of time each day, just sort of going to the rabbit holes that are, that are available on the internet. And once you go into a rabbit hole, there's not a lot of light. So it's pretty hard to sit back and start reading, you know, Pope and Samuel Johnson and, and Virginia Woolf and, 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 you know, Saul Bellow. Okay, so I mean, what, what, are you, what are you getting at? I, I suppose I was, uh, you know, circuitously going to the idea that there's a distinction that's taking place between what once was central to the book business to what is becoming more marginal. And in some ways, I suppose, you know, it's, 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 it's less compelling to somebody like me because the principles upon which I uh, adhered upon going into the business, which was research and the individual copy of the central text, you know, have, have melted at the sides. And I think continue to at this point. I mean, I see catalogs now that are issued by some of the brighter booksellers I know that have no books in them any longer. You know, they're, they're reduced to, you know, photo albums of women who served in, in the wax of the Second World War. It's more like a documenting of what took place. Well, and I think that's the thing. They want to capture the zeitgeist of the time or something. Well, I think it has something to do with a certain type of nostalgia, too, because it isn't as if people are collecting menus from 18th century Parisian restaurants, though if a good one turned up, there would be a market for it. But, you know, I've never met anybody yet or, you know, or 19th century English uh, railroad schedules. So it's very interesting to see certain types of things. During the pandemic, this burst of energy and money that was dedicated to online auctions dedicated to selling unused video games and uh, sports trade cards. And this morning in the news, there was a piece that the first uh, soccer trade card to ever sell for a million dollars traded yesterday. No surprise. It was, it was a, a, a Pele card, right? But, you know, I mean, if somebody told you three, four years ago that there'd be a, be a Pele card that would trade for a million dollars, you would have, after the person told you that, quietly called the psychiatric ward and suggest they pick the person up and, you know, and give them some help. So, I mean, th- 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 those are profound changes. I mean, you know, when, when, when uh, you ask some older booksellers if they have an impression of uh, people spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on unused video games, y- you know, they just shake their head in disbelief. Would you say that your job then these days is to try and get a handle on, again, it's looking for value. I, I, it seems to me that, you know, with, uh, I'm going back to Sting just because just he's there. You know, his archive, that's, that's 
something that you can easily sort of grasp onto and package up or make a really good argument for and sell it to some organization that that's what you're focusing on that kind of work because it's more in line with historically what you've done or are you trying to get a whole sense of where all this is going so that you can capitalize on it somehow i think i understand the question you're asking you know i I, i'm i'm still rooted in the same uh soil that 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 i've been uh, tilling since since i went into business in, in in the late 70s i'm more than willing to look at archives that are now I suppose you'd have to characterize them as as unorthodox relative to the ones that in the past I, I handled. If you look at um, a list of the projects I've worked on over the years and looked at the projects from the 80s and 90s that we were successful in um, crafting and, and then selling, yeah, they, 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 they do read like something that, that flirts with Western canon. If you look, if you look at the archives that we're handling right now, they, 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 um, like are, who, for example, Glenn? Like, like, what are you looking at right now? What have you got right now? Well, we, 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 we did a deal recently, uh, sold the papers of the, uh, uh, the very glamorous and, and, and beloved female writer Eve Babbitts, um, who, uh, you know, really is was, was along with Joan Didion, sort of the female voice of California in the 60s and 70s. Again, five years ago, seven years ago, before the New York Review of Books started to reprint all of Eve's work, a name a name that was little known. We recently did a deal for the vast audio archive of the feminist podcasters, the Kitchen Sisters, with uh, the Library of Congress. These are projects that 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 you know, even as recently as ten years ago, I probably wouldn't have given much thought to. But you know, because of the the, the length of time we've been doing this and the fact that the word archive seems to have been introduced into the language in a manner that 20 years ago uh, it wasn't. If you if you look at a directory of booksellers in any community, uh, it's very often the way they list them is uh, you know the, the names of the businesses, their address, their, their their contact information, and then they will describe what they deal in, you know, travels and voyages or you know mathematics. Half of them today all deal in archives. Ten years ago, yes, the word archives yes. you know, <laughs> simply simply wasn't part of the general dialogue. Of, of the bookselling community. Yeah, at moments, at moments, I feel you know bemused, and other moments, I feel slightly frustrated, feeling that somehow you know, I mean, you know, something that I was significantly responsible for helping mature yes. that was now yes. been appropriated by, by by the whole world. It's like everyone's out there trying to figure out, okay, so who's got anything that I can sell, anything of value that I that I can sell, and I'm going to go after them and pitch them on selling the archive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's even you know yeah yeah no that's articulate and, and and insightful, but it's gotten to the point that, and I suppose this is this is just a function of of what amount of success we've enjoyed that's been fortunately for us publicized through various uh, you know, uh, elements of the press, and also the size of the transactions as they're documented in the press. But I would think that right now probably half, if not more, of the archives that we work on. Uh, come to us. I mean, we, we're not even yes. out there, you know, kicking on yeah. doors and and you know and rattling the window panes uh, to get people's attention. It's it's a blessing, but there's a lot of time that we spend gently letting people know that you know the amount of energy that is required to put these uh, transactions together, you know, wouldn't justify the, the result. Wouldn't justify the expenditure on other parties' part. 
but every, everybody, everybody suddenly, which I think quite interestingly, and I do think it goes back to the experience of daily life on online. I mean, you know, everybody has a email archive. I mean, so, but it just yes. seems to me that suddenly, you know, the whole world, you know, everybody has an archive in a way that 25 years ago, when I would give a talk, you know, people would say, you know, I remember once lecturing at the University of Texas, probably, you know, 25 years ago, roughly. And yeah. yeah. I was talking at a conference. And the issue uh, that I was asked to address was was my relationship with the University of Texas in terms of, of uh, the transfer of archives from generators and beneficiaries to Austin and uh, to the Ransom Center. And and at the end, you know, after talking what I thought was uh, you know, you know, remarkably succinctly and urgently for an hour on the issue of archives, uh, you know, they opened up the floor for questions and elegant older woman at the front uh, raised her hand and stood up and said, I just have one question. She says, well, what is this thing you keep talking about? An archive. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 yeah, it was very poignant and yet it really you know, it, 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 was, it was something of a mystery at that stage I have a question now about the way you work and that is you're not a joiner you're not a member of any of the professional associations and you know you talked about the horse trading and stuff that goes on and I'm genuinely very close to a dozen 15 booksellers some some older uh, than myself, though, though as I age, there won't be many of those left, and you know many who I came of age with, and and and, and I've taken a great interest in a number of younger booksellers with whom I've developed both professional and personal friendships, and and try to act as something of a you know, a Virgil through 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 uh, the vicissitudes of through hell, <laughs> and um, but you know I, I think I think that I went into business. Uh, Fortunately, it's something I would advocate uh, to anybody in any profession. You know, when I was uh, I was 24, literally a month after my 24th birthday, and uh, I was so naive and, and stupid that I had very little anxiety about uh, how the business would evolve. Because if if you fail from you know a subterranean level, you don't have very far to fall. So I mean, it, it seems to me that there was a lot of risk involved in this, right? And 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 fortunately, for for you know reasons that too, too bountiful to take care of time. But I was lucky, truly lucky in that, in that uh, a number of people took an interest and therefore a shine to me at an early age and promoted me yeah. in ways that, that you know, I had not anticipated. And, and that went a long way to uh, strengthening my, my, my early position. I think there was a tremendous, not tremendous, that's, 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 that's an exaggeration. There, there was, there was, but there was a legitimate backlash that I also experienced at a young age from a generation of booksellers who were, you know, one or two decades further down in in the path, or even three decades, uh, there, there were you know low grade uh, urban myths that grew up that I was I had come from a very wealthy background and therefore I was dealing in books that were you know above my 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 uh, punching weight at, at at that age because you know, how, how could you be if you didn't have family money, and I think it soured me to some extent on what I saw as a, a, not a perverse camaraderie, but you know, it had a brackishness about it, a, a sort of a, a flintiness that just didn't appeal to me. And very frankly, without, without embarrassing my, my, my family, I was 24 years old. I was living in New York City, having been raised in a very rustic environment in upstate New York. At the, at the time, if the choice was hanging out with uh, these booksellers at the Grolier Club uh, or chasing 
uh, you know, young dancers, female dancers downtown, and there wasn't any choice. I was going to spend my time. <laughs> so it just, it just it wasn't really um, that appealing. And by the time I gave some thought to um, <laughs> it, I, I, and then, wait a minute, there's no dancing girls at the Grolier. Yeah. That's right. No, no, and it may, it may, it may have, it may have been also, you know, to some extent, my, my, my imperfection. It may have been uh, I, when I left uh, my my uh, uh, adolescence in upstate New York, in, in what was truly a, a very rustic and, and, and undereducated environment, and went off to uh, Southern Vermont to Bennington for college. Uh, it was it, it opened up a world that I had not been privileged to uh, have access to before. And, yeah. and I and I think I always had something of a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Um, and yeah. I think I probably, having started as early as I did without having any true mentors, probably carried that chip a little bit with me too. But I've never, uh, as far as I can tell, you know, uh, unless, unless, unless my memory is failing, I've, I've never joined uh, any of the clubs in New York City that you know have, have uh, offered membership and, and certainly none of the bookselling organizations. There was also a mechanical reason that I wasn't that interested in the book uh, organizations, uh, professional organizations that exist, which is uh, to a large degree, they exist to uh, mount and promote international book fairs. To some extent, I guess they exist to help uh, settle uh, minor domestic disputes amongst booksellers, but fundamentally they're there to promote the book as, 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 as a commercial object in the guise of public exhibitions long before uh, the art world gathered that art fairs were you know, a way of increasing their, 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 their profile. And it always struck me early on, actually, I don't know, but, but early on, I, I recollect going to a number of major book fairs in New York City and taking people with me who were, were buying books from me so we could walk around, I could show them things, we could buy some things. And a slightly <laughs> idiosyncratic client of mine um, who at the time was the president of the largest Teamsters local in New York City, uh, his name was Dennis Silverman, went to the book fair with me. And, and we were building what became not only a notable, but but uh, to use your other word, notorious uh, James Joyce collection, which uh, after Dennis was, was, was arrested and indicted and uh, sent away, uh, we reacquired and Put into the market. The New York Times wrote a long article about the Teamsters of James. That's that, that's that is it. Yes, um, just, that is such an, a freaking amazing catalog. It, it was a great collection. You've got seven copies of Ulysses up front. Yeah, that, that, that double page spread is a beautiful one. I'm so happy I've got. But nonetheless, I, I, rec- I recollect walking through this book fair with with, with Mr. Silverman. Yeah, who was an enthusiast, but not but not a uh, uh, educated man. We were walking around and he, he came to me. We, we parted company. He walked on one aisle, another. We met a half hour later. And he said, I've got to ask you a question. I said, what's that? He said, this is a rare book fair. I said, yes. He said, if it's a rare book fair, why are all the same books here? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I've seen more copies of Ulysses you know, on this floor in the last half hour than I thought existed in the world. And they're all here. And, and it always struck me that, that, that you know, somehow if you, without, without context and without education, without background, suspend people's disbelief in that fashion, that's a very difficult uh, amount of trust to rebuild if the perception on the part of the uh, necessary party to the transaction, the consumer, the collector, uh, perceives this material as being ubiquitous and, and common. And I think that contributed a little bit to my sense that I would be better off just to 
keep to myself and and keep my my inventory quiet. It's one reason I didn't go online uh, until a very very late uh, moment in my life, and and really and not and not even because of me, but because of my daughters and my younger staff who said you're making yeah you know, we're making a mistake that we should do this because I always felt that in dealing almost exclusively in unique material, whether it be for the private market or the research market, you know, I, I knew something that was. Uh, privileged and that was proprietary. Yeah. By yeah. just throwing it out in the world, you know, uh, willy nilly to anybody who could turn on a uh, you know a MacBook, it just it just it, that 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 wasn't a particularly intelligent way of of uh, putting that information to use. Can we just re- revisit that experience you just described about the the book fair? Were you basically saying that a lot of these booksellers were saying that this book was very very rare what was it that turned him off or you off it, no it wasn't it wasn't the matter of, of saying that it's rare but you know if 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 you walked into uh the armory in new york city for a rare book fair if you walked into you know wherever in los angeles in a given year a rare book fair is being held if you uh, show up at a hotel in london for a yearly international book fair the implication is that you are going to look at things that are difficult to procure and are worth your time and attention. So in the case of my friend, Mr. Silverman, all he could see was that every copy of Ulysses that he was looking at, depending on its condition in those days now, you know, were ranging in value from 10000 to thirty-five dollars to $40,000. But the fact that there were just so many copies, you know, at that moment, you know, the snapshot of that evening, that opening evening of the book fair, um, and each bookseller purportedly trying to present their copy of Ulysses as something that was different than the copy four booths or six booths or eight booths away. That just struck me as, as you know, a, a slightly uh, complex formula to try to explain what makes books both interesting and potentially valuable at the same time. Because if you know if if it's a matter of just picking and choosing from you know any one of eight copies that are there, uh, that's hard to define as a a as a uncommon, scarce, or even rare book. And that that that's something that stuck with me for a long time. I think it also probably contributed to driving me into a narrower frame yeah. of saying, you know, I'm going to look for unique material. We built a collection back in the '90s for a real estate developer in New York City, now deceased, named Roger Reckler. And uh, for various reasons that were unique to Mr. Reckler's uh, situation, in 2002, he decided that he, he wanted to cash out of the books he had bought. He had bought you know, very serious books. Every book in his collection was a unique copy of that title. Or maybe I should say 92% of them, but, but the overwhelming majority. And that was the principle upon which I prevailed upon him to, to build this collection with me. And uh, Christie sold it in October 2002. And there hadn't been probably since the seventies when the world was a radically different place and the auction houses were radically different, a collection of uh, 20th century literature, 19th and 20th century literature that even looked fractionally as good as this and was sold as a single over sale. There was a sale, three-part sale at Sotheby's when it was still Sotheby's Park Burnett on Madison Avenue of a man named uh, insurance, an insurance executive from uh, Connecticut named Jonathan Goodwin and, Goodwin and copies you know, carry a great deal of, of, uh, of uh, distinction in the state. So Mr. Reckler and I finally agreed upon uh, a deal with Christie's that I, I put together for him. And Christie's was 
kind enough to write their catalog by using the catalog we had written for, for Mr. Reckler. And if I said that the, the pre-sale estimates were two and a half to three and a half million dollars, it, it made upwards of seven million dollars by the end of the afternoon. Uh, there were only a couple hundred books in it. And with that, in 2002, there was you know, you know, a, a very demonstrable sea change that took place in the market. And suddenly people went from focusing a great deal of, of energy on beautiful copies of 20th century books in dust jackets. They didn't kick them you know, out of the party, but suddenly everybody wanted association copies. They wanted the Oscar Wilds and the Conrads and the, and the Joyces and the Virginia Woolf's and the Hemingways inscribed to other literary figures. And I'm not by any stretch of the imagination uh, suggesting, though, though maybe... Uh, it, it, it sounds like it's implicit what I'm saying, that, that I was responsible for that. But by concentrating all of this material in one sale and people yes. having an opportunity to see what happens, what resonates when this is all you know, juxtaposed, I mean, yeah. really caught people to stand up and, 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 and take notice. That's exactly what happened with your African-American catalog, as I understand it. But much, much slower, much slower. That, 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 okay. was, that was a source of, it, that was that project, which, which I have a profound, profound affection for and, and, and a catalog that, that. I got know. that catalog. I'm so happy I have it. No, it's what it's, I, I think without question, one of the two or three best, uh, that, that we have were able to, to bring. And why out. is that, Glenn? Why is it the best? Well, it's, it, it, it was, well, first, it's, it's a very beautiful object, as you know, cloth bound, put together by Mr. Kelly in, 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 in you know, really fine garments. It had a, a, a deep novelty to it, a deep novelty to it, which is to say nobody had attempted to narrate the key strains of the African-American experience in the United States from 1619 to the moment we issued that catalog in, in the 90s, through the objects that were in the, you know, the books and manuscripts that were in that catalog. And there was a coherence to it. I mean, you could read it and walk away and say, gee, I understand something. At least I would hope yeah, you could. Yeah, exactly. You I, I understand something that I, you I never thought, yeah, thought. And it was beautifully written and edited. And it just it had, it had a great deal that went for it. And it was at, it was at a very good moment, too, because... <laughs> um, we, uh, I, I built the collection because I, uh, from, from, from the get-go, um, which is says right at the business, I was always dealing um, in African-American material. It interested me greatly. Uh, minority voices, maybe because I was, uh, uh, I was raised Jewish and, and, and sensitive to being Jewish, but minority voices interested me greatly and, 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 and Black literature interested me. Back in the early 80s, if you look at a bookseller's catalog, um, the way that they would catalog and offer African-American literature was not uh, under the name of James Baldwin or Tony Morrison or James Weldon Johnson or Frederick Douglass. But after you got done with uh, the Kings and the Amoses and the W.H. Orton, you get to the B's and parenthetically you would say black literature, black literature, black literature, and that all the black wow. literature would end up in the B's, you know, under black literature. Wow. So I, I had begun to accumulate a not insignificant inventory of uh, black literature and I, and I couldn't sell it. Nobody wanted it. I mean, nobody wanted it. And so I thought, screw it. You know, if nobody wants it, I'm just going to build this collection. And I spent, you know, probably a dozen years uh, collecting African-American literature, African-American documents, ancillary material with, with an eye that one day I was going to do something with it. Though I had no idea at the time what I was going to do. And then, and then the thought of putting the catalog together came. The catalog was, was, <laughs> was almost through press um, 
at the time that the O.J. Simpson trial was coming to a head. So questions relating to to uh, racial tensions and the history of race in the United States were very much in uh, front and center. And when we got ready to publish the catalog, we also determined we were going to do an exhibition in what was then our rare book gallery on 76th and Madison in New York. When I thought about it, I said, yeah, this is you know, potentially problematic because uh, you know, the two names on the title page, myself and my co-author, uh, were Horowitz and Weinstein. And so here you know, we're, 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 we're two Jewish guys once again exploiting the black experience. Yeah. So yeah. I thought, I, I, need, I need to get a little bit of uh, uh, sunscreen here. So I initially reached out to the publisher of the legendary uh, black newspaper in Harlem, the Amsterdam News, who was kind enough to get the great jazz critic and cultural critic Stanley Crouch to write a piece about it. Poignantly, after Stanley uh, died, I, we handled his archive and sold that to the to the Schoenberg in New York City. But I, I still knew that I wanted something more than that. And so I sought out a woman who had a, a black woman named Terry Williams, who had her own PR firm here in the city that was dedicated to uh, all things African-American. She, she had cut her teeth as uh, one of Oprah Winfrey's earliest uh, PR flacks. And I went to her at the suggestion of a, a mutual friend and uh, explained to her what I was trying to do. And, and Terry looked at me um, Terry eventually got a very dear friend, but looked at me like I was out of mama. She said, what are you talking about? And I said, look, I understand. I said, I'm this Jewish kid comes from the Casco Mountains. I've published this catalog. I'm going to put it out. And I'm telling you, I know how this world works and I'm going to get a lot of blowback. Yeah, I'm going to get a lot of blowback. And therefore I'm looking for, I'm looking for some sort of you know, you know, body armor here. So when I left, she said, I get what you're getting at. She said, let me think about this for a little while. Uh, and I'll get back to you in a, day, you know, a couple of days. So she called and she said, look, she said, if, if it doesn't make sense, you just tell me, but I think I have an opportunity that might serve the purpose that you, you came to me seeking a solution for. And I said, what's that? She said, at the opening of the exhibition, she said, what would you think about co-host, a co-host for the opening? I said, sure, who's that? She said, Johnny Cochran. I said, Johnny Cochran. I said, that would be just fabulous. I mean, yeah, I mean, most famous lawyer in America at that moment, right? Yes. And John, John, Johnny uh, was was opening a New York office after the dramatic attention that he received for the OJ trial. And Terry was doing his his you know, his PR work in the city. And so Johnny uh, shared the invitation with me and we opened up the collection together and had a dinner that evening. And for the next, alas, he, he, he died prematurely, the next four or five years, uh, he was the biggest buyer of African-American material I had. <laughs> so it, it, it went full circle. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it took years. You didn't say who you got to uh, write in the catalog. It was a very, uh, then the dear friend of mine who started life as a client, um, the amateur historian, a good one too, named Randy Weinstein. Um, right. The title page. We also did get um, a preface. So I, I did leave this out. And I did get my longtime friend, uh, Henry Louis Gates, write the introduction to the catalog. Yes. In exchange for the first edition of Phyllis Wheatley's poems that we had in the catalog uh, at the time for $7,500. That today, that copy would probably be worth about $50,000. But if the material <laughs> of that catalog was back in my hands today, uh, goodness gracious, I mean, it would just you know, be explosive compared to what it was then. So we were, we were, you know, handling the right material in the right environment at the wrong time is the only way to describe it. But it was a great catalog. You're right about that. Well, that tells me quite a bit about what you do, Glenn. Uh, do you think we've covered off what you do adequately? I could go on for another seven or eight hours if you want, but uh, you've seen, you've seen that, that, that impulse of my part in the past, so I, I shall restrain it. Um, 
<laughs> no, I, 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 I think that there's, I think that there's enough there for people to reflect on. And if at a later date, uh, it generates enough conversation and we want to go back and approach it from different perspectives, I'd be more than happy to do that also. Okay. Just before we finish, there's a couple, like I'm, I'm a little bit slow this afternoon because there's two, two points that I still haven't quite grasped. One, you said that your catalog was used by Christie's. What exactly? Because it seems to me that, that that is sort of a sign of success of your catalog, in a no, way. No, no, no. It, it was, it what was does really, that mean? It, well, in this case, it was, it, was, it was both financial and tactical. Auction houses, you know, this is no secret. I mean, they, they, they would broadcast this all day and, you know probably give me a free lunch for, for, for giving it to you for the podcast. A- auction houses depend to some extent, uh, to some degree on third parties bringing material to them for sale. Yeah, they know where bodies are buried, the auction houses at any given moment might not. And, and the auction houses, like any commercial um, enterprise, and, and uh, you know, as much as you praise my catalogs, I will never lose sight of the fact that they are commercial vehicles. So you do have to call them question some of what we say in there. But that being the case, um, if you go, yeah, to it's, hyper, it's hyperbole, but you it is salesmanship. Yeah, if, if you if you uh, wake up one day to find out an ancient aunt of yours passed on, and little did you know that she collected uh, Whistler etchings and had a very good collection of it, and you said that I'm going to take these, you know, to Sotheby's or Christie's and, and let them sell them, uh, they will offer you what in the trade is called an IC, an introductory commission, and the commission will be a percentage of what they can gain uh, for themselves by the sale of the material. So you are, you are complicit at that moment in the transaction with the auction house because what, you're, what you will take away as your introductory commission is a function of what they get for the material. So when I was trying to figure out who, what, what would be the appropriate venue for Mr. Reckler to sell his books in, uh, I was in many ways the interlocutor between Mr. Reckler and the auction houses and the auction houses you know, very forthrightly said, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll pay you an introductory commission for, uh, you know, for, for, for this collection because we're, we are desperate to get this collection. Desperate. You did up a catalog for it? One of the terms upon which we built his collection was that everything would be cataloged within inches of its life. And every year we would do up a, at Christmas from a gift and we would bind up the current status of the collection. So the, the first year there were 32 pages, the second year there were 64 pages, then 128, but we would give it to them, you know, as a Christmas gift every year in a beautiful Morocco binding. Okay. okay. We catalog everything that we sell for the people we sell it to, but, but this, was, this was keeping a real catalog book by book by book, which was one of the terms upon which he agreed that he would go out and work on this project. He, just, you know, he wanted something he could share with his family and something he, he could read and, and continue to understand the dimensions of what he was doing. So when it came time to strike a deal with Christie's, which we were able to have to you know, much back and forth, I realized that, that if, since everybody knew that I had built this collection for Roger, and everybody in the trade knew it, of course, and he was buying books from nobody but me for this collection, that if, if I was seen as somehow being in bed with Christie's over the, the um, uh, outcome of the sale, it would, I think, appropriately call into question, particularly uh, amongst skeptical intelligences, what my relationship to this whole activity was. So if, if, for example, the catalog comes out and there's an inscribed copy of Ulysses with an estimate of eighty to $120,000, 
And I say, Nigel, that's a, that's a fantastic book that you really should have in your collection. I think you should spend $350,000 on the book. A perfectly reasonable question would be, Glenn, wait a minute. I mean, you built this collection. You know, you took it to Christie's. It's common knowledge. Christie's says it's worth $820,000. Therefore, under New York state law, the low, the highest the reserve could be is $80,000. You're telling me to spend four and a half times, 450 times, you know, 450% more than the low estimate on this book. And you're going to be participating, you know, in the outcome of, of the transaction, right? So it's the, your benefit, Glenn, to convince me to spend more and more and more and more, right? So what I did in the case of Christie's, and Christie's agreed to this, was rather than be seen um, as a as as a partner of Christie's, uh, I agreed that I would take my fee by selling them this extensive catalog that we had written of Mr. Reckless Collection, uh, with the idea that that would be my commission for bringing them the deal. The catalog would save them a great deal of work and labor. And, and I were, see. So they and, actually and, paid for the work that you they put paid for the catalog. catalog. And, 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 and the deal was that they could do one of three things. They could publish it verbatim. They could redact okay. it to serve the purposes. Or they could use it simply for background. I um, understand. So okay. we struck the yep. deal. They paid me 50%. They paid me the second 50% of the fee the day before the sale. It permitted me to go to anybody that was the interested both institutionally and privately uh, in bidding at the sale and say with a clear conscience, I, I have you know, any advice I'm giving you is, is yeah. agnostic. Um, you know, you're out. Yeah. You're out. If they yeah. don't sell a single book, I get my commission. If they sell them for a billion dollars, I don't get a nickel more than that. Very and I was, I was, I was the biggest buyer at the sale. I think I spent of the 7 million, probably about three, three and a half million dollars all on commission for various people. And you know, that was also important to Christie's too, because they knew that nobody knew the collection as well as I did and therefore could yeah. go out and represent it piece by piece to potential buyers better than I could at the same time. So Very that, good. Okay. And just finally, we'll end up with, I still don't understand this seven Christie's <laughs> on the, the floor of that fair. Are you saying it's kind of like they were car dealers and they all had like they all grouped together? I don't know. This is how you. Let me let me finish. Let me finish. This is so you go there because they're all there showing off their what they've got in comparison. The the buyer can kind of kick the tires and go around and look at them all in a very easy way before they buy and you don't like that is that what you're saying well look i mean i'm sure it's the same in in, in canada's united states i mean um you know in, in in all small to middle to large cities it's very common to find the car dealerships you know on the same strip you know on, yeah on, on, it on makes the, it yeah, convenient it makes it yeah. very very convenient but one 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 dealer is selling mercedes and another is selling uh, uh toyotas and a third is selling chevrolets and a fourth is selling you know, hondas all eight of these people were selling Ulysses. <laughs> they were selling the same product. They Each were, but they're it's condition, of course. That's well, I mean, but 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 that would then mean that and and association that, 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 that the Nigel Beale that wandered in to the armory to see if rare books might be something that would capture his imagination would walk out getting even more confused. Then when he was preparing to enter with questions bouncing around in his mind about, is this something that would appeal to me? Because you would look and you would say, 
you know, it, 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 I mean, this is a rare book and it just seems to me that everywhere I go, I'm seeing the same objects. So it's not rare. You go in and you think it's rare. It's supposed to be rare. Rare is a word that, that, that you have, I'm sure, been, been schooled by other booksellers you've interviewed is, is, is a overused and, and simplified word. I mean, there used to be definitions of what a rare book was. Um, it was the idea of procuring something that is truly uncommon is a motivating factor in anybody who is building a collection. You know, goes back yes. to that, that image I used before of, of the human touch, right? I mean, at one extreme, at one terminus. So, you know, for, the, for, for those who are in the process of being educated, walking into an environment like that could, could be and was for any people a confounding experience. I mean, just, just confounding. Because, well, why? because because how, how do you, without having any context, any background, and any education and connoisseurship, how do you distinguish why one book is ten thousand dollars, one is twenty thousand, one is thirty, one is fifteen, one is eighteen? I mean, and they all look to your to your untrained eye as being the same object. I um, see. So it it is confusing without the context, without the without the catalog, basically. Well, it's large, and I would say that anybody who builds a genuinely meaningful collection in 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 many different fields, whether it be porcelain or furniture, or books or pictures, and and books, will ultimately find a dealer or a small number of dealers who earn their confidence and who they will turn to for yeah. advice and insight into explaining what are the idiosyncrasies of, of the marketplace. I mean, it's you know, like, like any uh, secondhand goods, and you know, these may be more refined than, you know, 1950s chests of drawers in a, in a used furniture store, um, but they are secondhand goods. And, and the secondhand market is, is you know, for better or worse, and, and there are many people who are critical of it, is it can be a you know, very non-transparent environment. Uh, so to have somebody who can function as something of a, a, a searchlight, a flashlight for you as a collector is, is a valuable relationship as time goes on. Well, Glenn, speaking of value, you know how to spot value and present value. And so do I when it comes to picking guests on the podcast. That's astonishing. You've had it more than once. <laughs> Thank you for your valuable contribution, Glenn. It's always a pleasure. The same here, Nigel, and I look forward to chatting with you again. Very good. Enjoy the weekend. All right.